great to, great to see you tonight. Now, I trust as Blair was saying before that um, God has something to say to each of us tonight. And with that in mind, why don't we um, just invite him to, to come and in, invade our, our lives once more, shall we? Um, Heavenly Father, thank you that you're here, you're present. There is a beautiful temple that you have constructed and delight to construct in the hearts of each and every one of us. Scripture tells us to spend one day in your presence in the temple of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. What a privilege, what a delight to know that you have built that temple in our hearts and you dwell there forever and ever and ever. That's kind of like a, a quiet place that we want to go to now, Lord, where we can hear from you. Push in to the, to the Holy of Holies, that, that intimate place within each and every one of us and, and just say, Heavenly Father, please speak because your words bring life. Please come now and speak to each and every one of us. You, you know us better than we know ourselves. Come, Holy Spirit, and minister to our deepest needs. We ask this in your name. Amen. I've got a bit of an unusual passage to share with you tonight. And as we slowly unpack it, I hope that it ministers to each and every one of you. You'll see in a moment why it's a bit unusual. I probably used to think of this as I read through the Gospels as one of the most comical moments um, that there was in the Gospels. And you'll see why again in, in a short while. But let me, um, let me go back just a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, we had a friend of a friend come out to our place and uh, he helped us, walked us around our, our yard and, and um, helped me to understand that a lot, of, a lot of the trees actually weren't eucalypts. They were fruit trees and citrus trees. And we got, it was quite, quite stunning to find out. We've got grapefruit and um, um, oranges, limes, which look like lemons but aren't, um, pears, um, uh, berries and plums and all sorts of things. But because of a bit of neglect, to be quite honest, um, they needed quite a bit of pruning. So probably the the tree I'm most proud of, if I can if I can say, in terms of my pruning, was the pear tree, which was about twice as big as it should have been. It really needed to be taken back. So very very carefully, I stood on a, a ladder a couple of weeks ago with Bron as my my watcher, and she she very very carefully handed me the chainsaw. And, um, and I was able to reduce the pear tree half its size. And, and now, actually, as we go out the driveway, it is just starting to blossom. It's actually looking really, really good. What I've had to learn, though, in all of this is, particularly taking it back to the extent that I did, is I had to learn to be patient. When it comes to fruit, you really have to be patient. The problem with fruit and being a gardener is that sometimes you can overemphasize it. And sometimes you can underemphasize fruit. The same in the Christian life. We've got fruit written up there boldly of the three key words that you know we want to we want to talk about here at the Vine Baptist Church. And and I guess if we were to fall into the era of overemphasizing fruit, we might actually switch it around with the word abide. We often say, do we not, when we talk about our vision statement, hey, 
As abiding disciples of Jesus Christ, we long to live fruitful lives so that our God is seen for who he really is. God gets glory by the fruit of our lives, which comes as a result of abiding. However, sometimes we can fall into this error, and that is to actually switch the word fruit and abide over. We can fall into the error of sometimes thinking, you know what, it's the, it's the fruit of my life, it's, it's my obedience, it's my behaviour, it's the way that I live for God and the pleasure that he gets from that that actually leads to that abiding relationship with him and gives God the glory. It's a very, very simple thing, isn't it? Two words and they're both correct. Switch them around, get the order wrong and all of a sudden you've fallen into an area of untruth. We're going to explore that in a moment. Here's another one. That is to say, fruit, fruit, <laughs> overrated. I don't know why everybody's looking for fruit everywhere as if it's important. No, let's just get rid of fruit. And as a gardener, I guess both would make me a poor gardener. If all of a sudden I was, I was looking for fruit without, without a tree actually being healthy and, and well-connected and, and rooted into the soil and watered and unless that unless that tree was in a good place, I guess it's not going to bear fruit. I'd be a pretty lousy gardener to expect it to do so. That would be one error. The other would be to just totally ignore it and say fruit, unimportant. I just like the tree for the value of its shade. Either way, in our passage today, we're going to look at two potential errors in the Christian life. One is adding to the word of God and the other is subtracting from the word of God or adding to the gospel or subtracting from the gospel. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 8. We're we're still in the book of Mark. And you'll probably have a heading in your Bible, something along the lines of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, something similar to that. We're going to read from verses 14 to 21. Mark chapter 8, (laughs) verses 14 to 21. From verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Now be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about bread. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see or ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Well, this passage breaks up nicely into two pieces. The first one here is the the caution or the warning from Jesus not to be carried away by false teaching. Beware of false teaching. What exactly was this false teaching that Jesus caused the yeast of the Pharisees and, and that of Herod? Now, in Matthew 16, 12, we've got, a, got an extra little footnote there in Matthew's version that tells us that they... The disciples were to understand from this that when Jesus was talking about this yeast, he was not telling telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Mark, 
It's the Pharisees and Herod or Herodians. And, and we get the sense that there is this, these two types of error. What, what are they and what was going on here? Well, one error was with the Pharisees, and they like to, to add to the Word of God. You know, one of the very first, oh, sorry, the very last verses in Scripture warns us, doesn't it, to not add or take away from these words. John warns us about the danger of that. Well, the Pharisees would fall into the error of adding to the Word of God. It's great to have all of these laws. It's very important to have these laws. But you know what? You want to be careful. It's not enough just to follow these laws. We need to add a few extra laws to make sure that we don't inadvertently break any of God's laws. And so the Pharisees were adding to the Word of God. They were adding rules and regulations and rituals and all sorts of things like that. And that can lead to a thing which we sometimes call legalism. Now, legalism isn't a Greek word or a Hebrew word. It's not technically in the Bible. It's a construct to help us understand the error of God's people by putting our behavior ahead of grace, meaning that we find favor with God because of the way we behave, the way in which we conduct our life. That's more important. That's what wins favor with God instead of actually the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. So that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were adding to the word of God, and that would lead to legalism. Now, the Sadducees, who were kind of, well, they were kind of in cahoots with Herod. They would be the modern-day liberals, those who kind of are looking for some sort of a truce between church and state. Now, let's try and find a nice, easy secularism, which can kind of have everybody happy. That was the way the Sadducees went. But of course, that meant compromise. That meant they had to subtract from the Word of God. They had to take away from the Word of God. Best way to do that would be just to reinterpret certain scriptures. And that, of course, led to license. And so the Pharisees would add to Scripture, that would lead to legalism. The Sadducees would subtract from Scripture, and that would lead to license. But both of them actually have their roots in the same thing, a fundamental disbelief that Jesus is enough. The Pharisees and the Sadducees both rejected Jesus. They both um, would not believe that he was who he said he was, and therefore they, they both struggled with the gospel that he preached. Paul, in Galatians, had some of his harshest words, I guess, for both errors, but particularly that of legalism. Now, we've sometimes talked about license and, and the way in which, you know, if we kind of, if we kind of uh, subtract from the Word of God, it, it leads to a Christianity that just doesn't even worry about fruit, to be quite honest. What I wanted to focus on a little bit more tonight was the other area, which particularly in evangelical circles, we have to talk about from time to time. Paul, as I said, had some of his harshest words for this era of legalism, and he called it yeast. And we'll talk a little bit more about why he uses, uses yeast as a description for this. But why is it dangerous? What is wrong with, with legalism per se? And, and why would Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, actually use use sarcasm and rebuke the harshest that he uses as he, as he writes to the recipients of that letter. Well, here's a, here's a few thoughts on that. Firstly, he likened it to yeast. And I don't know if you've ever made, made bread, maybe pizza that is going to rise, and you've, you've had a batch of dough. And then you add the yeast. 
And once that yeast is, is mixed in, it's actually very, very hard to detect. Just looking initially at a batch of dough that has yeast mixed into it, you're not going to pick that it has any yeast in there. That is part of the problem. Yeast is actually hard to see. When you will see it is actually over time with a little bit of heat and a little bit of warmth, that dough will just start to puff up. It starts to puff up and it kind of feels pretty good about itself, to be quite honest. <laughs> not, like, not like some of that other flat, yeastless dough over there. You know, pride and a kind of self-righteousness can creep in with, with legalism. When that yeast gets in, the easiest way to tell is not initially, but over time it will just start to puff up above all the other batches of, of dough. It's dangerous because it's hard to detect until after the fact when it has permeated the, the whole batch of dough and then it does maximum damage. Um, Ollie and I um, were meeting on Monday to talk about this particular passage. He was preaching on it over at, over at Hurstbridge and I here this morning and, and we're kind of, kind of just sharing our notes and so forth and Ollie made a really, really astute observation. He said, do you know why I think um, legalism is so hard to detect? I said, no, tell me. And he said, well, I've been thinking about this. It's because on the surface, it looks just like obedience. I said, that's true. And he said, the only way to really tell the difference between legalism and obedience is to actually, actually look behind that, what drives it. And he just made the comment that he had been thinking about this and he's thinking legalism is driven by self, but obedience is driven by love. It's hard to detect. It, it really is. And that's why I believe that, that Paul says it's, it's, it's so dangerous. It enslaves the individual. And um, um, in, in Galatians, uh, let, me, let me try and summarize Galatians with you with a little bit of illustration um, Blair, I'll get you to come and help me with this. So, so Paul is writing to the Galatians and he basically says that your former state, you know, before, before we preached the gospel to you, before you knew about the freedom that is, that is in Jesus Christ was you were, you, oh dear, <laughs> you, were, you were a slave, you were in bondage, you were imprisoned by, by all sorts of rules and regulations that were, were self-imposed. But then we came and we preached a gospel of freedom to you, a gospel of grace. And as you started to understand the truth of it, all of a sudden, you were free. You were free of that former lifestyle. You were a new person, a new creation in Christ Jesus. That was you. That's what Christ Jesus did for you. But now you're listening to other people. You're listening to those who would actually say that somehow you're inadequate and, and, and you're starting to, to feel a little bit like this, like, you know what, I, I love this new freedom, but there was something about the black and the white, you know? There was something about just knowing this is right and this is wrong. And you know, what if in my new freedom, I, 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 I somehow, I don't know, I'm, I, I become unanchored, unhitched. What if I drift? What if I drift away from God? Wasn't it better when I had at least... Something to hang on to, just something. You know, a, a, little, a little something that kind of just, yeah, makes me feel just a little bit secure about my Christianity. Y yeah, I, I, I don't think that would be too bad. I think it would be too bad to sort of just, you know, have a few, a few little guidelines and parameters like, what's that? Do I recycle? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I use those, those really, really natural, you know, baby, baby seal uh, plastic bags. And, 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 and then what, what's that? Am I using the chronological Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm doing it. And I'm even, I'm using, I'm using the, uh, the young earth theory of the chronological Bible, which is the much better one than the, the what, what's that? When, singing? Do I raise my hand? Absolutely. I can do the, I can do the five finger raise and I can do the 10 finger ways. I, I, I'm sure. And do I sing in the, do I sing in the spirit? Absolutely. I, I, I know either those times and, and the worship leader, it's kind of getting, getting awkward and, and, and I'm there. I'm the one of the first to sing in the spirit. And, and you know what? The problem with us, Paul says, is you are walking right back into the very slavery that Christ Jesus just freed you from. Why does Paul have harsh words about this? Because it will imprison you again. It will imprison you. And then it ends up condemning other believers. Hey, is your Bible cover made out of baby seal skin? You start condemning other people and then eventually it divides the church. And for Paul, he just says, that is no Christianity at all. In fact, thanks, Blair. In fact, um, he, he talks about this in, in chapter 5. He says in verse 8, you know, you who are trying to be justified by the law, you've actually now been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. In verse 7, he says, you are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? In verse 9, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. He implores them to come back to the truth of the gospel, captured in Galatians chapter 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ Jesus. Paul's message, essentially, you are covered by Jesus Christ. The problem with legalism is it enslaves individuals, it condemns all others, and it divides the church. It confuses a sign with the source. Fruit is, is a sign of abiding, not the source of abiding. Fruit or our behavior, our walk is a sign that an abiding relationship is taking place. It's a, it's a demonstration that that is the case. Turn it the other way around. Legalism says our behavior, our fruit, our walk is the source of our abiding relationship. It's determinative. It determines our abiding relationship. And that's not true. That's false. It's critical. It's judgmental. It's destructive. It's divisive. It minimizes grace. It reduces the gospel of its power. It divides Christians. And because it's never, ever satisfied, it turns spiritual freedom into spiritual imprisonment and ultimately destroys the unrepentant Christian. And you want to know the worst part of it all is there's a little bit of legalism in each of us. It's true. We have this, we have this daily battle where the yeast is blowing in our direction. Are we going to see it? Are we going to reject it? Are we going to make sure that it doesn't get in to this new life that we now have in Jesus Christ? Well, what can we do? 
What can we do about this? Well, the first thing I, I want to say, and this is to help protect the unity of a church, the first thing I would say is don't aim at spread by a critical spirit. Criticism is one of those things that the, the evil one just absolutely loves. Um, and it's, it's like going into a, into a bakery and taking a handful of yeast and it just... Using criticism to blow that yeast all around the bakery, it's going to get into the dough and it's going to, going to spoil each batch. So the first we can do, the first thing we can do is not to aid its spread with a critical spirit. But then the second thing, and this is really, really important here. The second thing is don't look outward, look inward. Don't go looking for it over there or there or there. Oh, I think I see something. Oh, I think I see something. You know how sometimes from time to time, different ones of you will come and say, hey, hey, Stuart, you know, as you're preaching tonight, oh, it's just such a blessing. It felt like you were talking directly to me. Well, okay, here is one of those occasions where that would not be a good thing, okay? I, I often, when we do preaching classes and that sort of thing, I told people, you know, don't preach to a person, preach to an audience, don't, don't use a public forum to tell somebody that which you would actually want to tell them privately. And, um, and, and so trust me tonight when I am, I am not talking to any single one of you. That would be me actually breaking this cardinal rule. That would be me looking outward, wouldn't it? Here's the tip. Look inward, not outward. Um, we can be so busy on our neighborhood watch finding legalism that we can inadvertently leave our own door open to a home invasion. If we're going to battle legalism and think about the beauty of this, the best thing to do is not to look outward but to look inward because now think about how this works. If every single one of us was actually to, to just clean house ourselves, make sure that we sweep out any, any little trace of legalism, any little part of that yeast, if everybody looks after their own life, huh, guess what? We're going to have a healthy church, aren't we? That way we actually don't have to be judging others. And, and to this, Jesus says, what happens is you start looking for a splinter in somebody else's eye and you've got an entire log jam in your own. One of the things we need to do here is to make sure we don't look outward, but we look inward. Now, all of this started with the disciples didn't it, with a discussion, oh, I think we forgot the bread. This is the comical moment, I think. Jesus, what are you talking about bread for? You know, It all started with the bread. Why? Because they thought, oh, we forgot the bread. He's talking about these yeast at the Pharisees because we don't have bread with us. He's trying to point out that we, we didn't cover off the meals. And then Jesus says to them, don't you understand yet? I've got this covered. I've got this covered. And then he uses two very, very recent and very vivid illustrations. He says, okay, just think with me here. He said, you know, don't you see? Don't you hear? Don't you even have a memory? Come on, think with me. When I broke the five loaves and the five for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? A 12, they replied. All right, now when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up then? It was seven, they said. See, don't you understand? Your father in heaven overcated. There was an abundance, was there not, of bread? 
And it becomes clear to us now that the lesson of the loaves was that, yes, whilst, whilst Christ ministered to the crowd's physical needs, the bread was a symbolism of grace, an abundance of grace in which God was able to minister, guess what, to their spiritual needs. When it comes to what do you need spiritually, what is it that is going to help you be the very best that you can be? There is an abundance of grace available. God has overcated. You kind of feel like, well, you know, when it comes to spiritual hunger, you should see my appetite. I have huge needs of grace. And God has you covered. Absolutely. He always loves when it comes to a spiritual appetite to overcater. There's an overabundance. There's a lavish provision here from from God. The bread equals grace. Um, Many years ago, my very, very first pastorate, one of the young guys in the church came to me and he said, Stuart, could could you have a word with a workmate of mine? He's in a really bad place. I said, oh, yeah, sure. Does he go to a church? He said, no, 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 he's never been to a church. But he's got some really dark things in his life and he wants to get them off his chest. He won't tell me what they are. He says it's too much for me to even hear. But he wants to talk to a priest. And would, would, you, would, would you help him out? I said, sure. He said, there's just one problem. I said, what's that? And I said, ah, somewhere in the conversation I may have dropped that you used to be a policeman. And I said, right. And he said, some of the things he might want to share could be illegal. I said, oh, okay. Is that a problem? I said, absolutely not. This was a couple of decades ago, remember, and some rules have changed. But back then, um, his confession was safe with me and and there was was no, no problem. So I met with this guy, and it was a little bit like out of, a, out of a spy movie, to be quite honest. He was very, very careful about where we met. It had to be in a park. And at a particular time, I was to be in a particular place in the park, and, and I was looking for him, and he'd be dressed like such and such. So, so I was there, and I was sort of looking around. I felt like a, yeah, it was like a spy movie, really. And looking around, and, and then finally I think, ah, oh, that's got to be him. And, and, and there we met, and Stuart, yes, and yeah, yeah we shook hands, and... And then he said, looking around, let's walk. And he just started taking off. I said, oh, okay. And so, so we're walking around and we probably walked around the first half hour. We just walked and walked and walked. And he, and he said, so you used to be a policeman. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, if I tell you something, do you, you know, is it? I said, no, no, you're good. You're good. That was, that was another, I'm not a policeman anymore. And I'm, I'm here as, as your pastor. He said, oh, I can tell you anything and it won't go any further. But it won't go any further. And so when he was finally convinced after about a half hour of walking around this huge park, sort of like a botanical gardens, he then started to open up. And he started to share some really dark stuff. I've got to say, I probably have never heard a confession like it. And I was so thankful that my friend had prepared me for what I was about to hear, at least a little bit, because at the end of it, He finally stopped, just broken, pouring out his heart, tears streaming down his face. He'd never told anyone about this stuff. And he basically looked at me and he said, do you think your God could forgive that? And I was thinking about Galatians and I was thinking, absolutely. And I smiled 
at him with a warmth that could only come from God. And I said, my dear friend, God has you covered. God has you covered. That's the message of Galatians. That's the message of the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ himself has you covered. He has put his righteousness on you and you are now covered with grace. Yesterday afternoon, I, I experienced an emotion I don't think I've ever experienced before. I felt sad for Collingwood. As a Carlton supporter, you've got to understand, that's a, that's a pretty big thing. But as a dutiful husband, I sat with my wife as we, as we watched the, the grand final. Now, spoiler alert, um, Collingwood lost. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you know, I know there's other ways to break it to you. But it was actually, I've got to say, whilst a little heartbreaking for, for Pi supporters, it was a pretty close match. In fact, it was a pretty spectacular match. The winner, of course, was West Coast Eagles, and somebody, somebody made the observation that by the final siren, they had only actually led on the scoreboard for about somewhere between five to seven minutes of the entire game. It just so happened that they were leading when the final siren sounded. And so basically West Coast were, were always playing catch-up with Collingwood. Collingwood would be a couple of points in the lead and then West Coast would finally catch up. And, and just on a couple of occasions, for maybe five to seven minutes, they, they actually hit the lead. Then Collingwood would come back again and they found it so hard to shake their opposition. Most of the, most of the match, they were being actually beaten. On a couple of rare occasions, they kind of, kind of got in front and then just as the siren sounded, <gasps> over the line, they happened to be two points in front. Now, if I was to use that as an analogy for the Christian life, an analogy that basically says, you know what? You have an opposition that is scoring points against you. But actually, if you, if you work hard and diligently and you're a good, obedient Christian, you can, you can clock up a few points. And maybe there will be those rare moments over the span of your life where you hit the front and you can actually... Stand up straight and kind of say, I'm doing good. I think I'm winning this. But then all of a sudden, your enemy attacks you again and you're down a few points. But as long as when the final siren sounds for you, you're just a couple of points in front, then you'll make it to heaven. And if I use that as an analogy for the Christian life, that would be a falsehood. That would be untruth. That would be heresy. And that's what Jesus is saying. Beware of that kind of thinking. Beware of that kind of yeast. Truth is, though, we can fall into that trap of thinking that way. We can live largely a a Christian life which is characterised by a sense of defeat and and not measuring up. And and if I I just could be a better Christian, I'll get a couple of points in front. and, And then, you know what, even if it's on my deathbed as long... As somehow there I confess Jesus Christ as my Saviour and Lord, just maybe, maybe I'll be two points in front and I'll get over the line. Wrong thinking. It's not how it works. That's not a gospel of grace. Here's, here's how the grace of Jesus Christ works. 
in the game of life, after you have lived the very best life that you could possibly live, you have done everything that you can do to, to kind of be a successful person, maybe, yes, even Christian, your score registers one big zero. That's it. That's your score. You face an opposition that is clocking up so many points against you. It's an infinite number and you will never in and of your own strength be able to equal that score, let alone overtake it. That's the reality of life without Jesus Christ. Enter Jesus. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel of grace. This is, this is your saviour. He steps into that picture in front of that scoreboard and he stands in front of the opposition score, however, however big that number of points that registers against you, that stands as your accuser is, your Lord and your Saviour stands in front of that and he says, I have this covered. And like one of those digital scoreboards that just suddenly dies and the numbers disappear, that's what the blood of Jesus Christ does. There is no score recorded against you, but it gets even better. Then when it comes to your score where there was a big zero, Jesus, your saviour, stands in front of that and suddenly your score registers the perfect life. Jesus' score is your score. Thanks be to Jesus, when you put your hand in his hand and say, help me to live, <laughs> guess what? A perfect score is suddenly registered for your life. And his invitation to you and to I is to walk in that, is to realise the score has already been recorded. It's been written down. And it says that you have lived the perfect life in Jesus Christ. All we need to do now is to learn to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. A perfect score. Isn't that beautiful? What new, crazy, radical teaching is, is this that I'm imparting to you tonight? It's the same kind of gospel that Charles Wesley understood in 1738. I was sharing this with my dad the other day. He came for a visit and sometimes he's in a retirement home, Baxter Village in Frankston, and, and sometimes he'll be preaching on a Sunday morning as I'm preaching. We'll just sort of, oh, what are you preaching on? And, and when he heard about this, he just said, oh, oh, that reminds me of one of the first hymns I ever learned as a young Christian. As a young Christian, I, I, I found it so difficult to feel free of my past. And somebody, somebody taught me this song by Charles Wisley, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Gudrun was sharing with me just before the service. It's her favourite song as well. It was sung at her baptism. But there, listen to some of these choruses, uh, sorry, verses. Verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, your Saviour, he left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. The grace of God found me. 
Verse 4, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I followed thee. Verse 5, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. What amazing words. That's grace. That's the gospel of grace. That's the gospel that we preach. You know, when we were choosing a new name for Eltham Baptist Church, what, a year ago or so, whenever that was, we chose the Vine Baptist Church. But you know, when I thought about different names, I was attracted to every name that had the word grace in it. Sometimes you see it more in, in perhaps the USA, but I don't know, it could, could it have been the grace vine. Oh, the grace vine, the grace vine. But, but no, no, we're not going there. But I love that grace is a word which characterizes us as a church. It's the gospel of grace that has changed everything. No wonder, just a few years after Charles Wesley, 1779, John Newton wrote, amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus says, beware of false teaching. It's like yeast. It can ruin the whole batch. But trust in me. I have you covered. I've got a hold of you. I'm enough. My grace is lavish. There's an abundance of it. I have overcated for you. I have you covered. That's Jesus' words to you. I'd like to invite the band to come up, and we're actually going to, going to sing that song. But as they do, Scott, would you mind coming up? Scott had a, um, a word um, for, for someone or perhaps some people here tonight, and I was just going to ask him to um, briefly, briefly share that with us. Um, maybe we'll use that one. It's ready to go. Thanks, Scott. If you wouldn't mind just reading that out. Good evening. During the worship this evening, I... Um got a word which I believe is for the whole church, for the body. Um, I've been working on your heart. I've been pulling on the heartstrings. I want, you to pu- I want to pour out my love into your lives. Why have you resisted me? Why have you kept your heart closed to my love? Open up your hearts. Let me come in and inhabit every area of your lives. I've asked you to give me access to every area, yet you have resisted me. I'm calling you to me, my bride, to be holy as I am holy. Will you be like the virgin who was unprepared, whose lamp had no oil, or will you allow me to fill you? Great. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, thank you. Well, maybe that's that's for you for you tonight. And um, I think Jesus would say, Come, come. Doesn't matter how hard it is, I've got this 